Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community. And that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. 
Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. When I walked into an acting class, when I would read a script, when I would create a character up on stage, there was no other place that I wanted to be. I, I just, mm. I, at 24 years old, when I jumped into an acting class, I finally found what my hell yeah is. And in Agile Artist, I talk about what that, you know, the concept of what your hell yeah is in the sense that if it's a relationship or a job or a career or a subject you're studying in school, if you do, if someone asks you, do you like what you're doing or do you, you know, love who you're with? If it's not a hell yeah, then it should be a no because in my mind, life is too short to settle. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hey, it's Srini. I have a special announcement or invitation. I put together a two-day in-person event of learning, connection, communication, and collaboration with some of your favorite unmistakable creative guests. It's called the Architects of Reality because in two days, you'll learn how to purposely design a life you love, find your superpowers, and become the next best version of yourself. The last time we had an event like this, it was 2014, and we have no plans at all to make this an annual event, so it may not happen again until 2024. So this is the time. It's going to take place in April 2020, so that gives you plenty of time to make it happen. But to get on the list, go to unmistakablecreative.com slash reality today so you don't miss out. And there's a link in the show notes too. I look forward to seeing your smiling faces in person. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash reality. Now, on with the show. Colin, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually came across your book, uh, Agile Artist, by the way of your publicist. And I, as I was saying to you before we hit record, I was 150, 160 pages into the book before I realized I'd seen every episode of, of Melrose Place, which is one of the shows which you're one of the main characters on. And I thought, oh my God, I actually know who this guy is. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, it was funny because I was looking also at your Wikipedia and I was like, wait a minute, I've seen a lot of these shows, but it wasn't until Melrose that I actually knew who you were. Okay. Uh but before we get into you know all the work that you've done as, as an actor, uh, one of the things I think that really struck me from the opening of the book was that it seems that there's like a spiritual undertone to it. So I, I want to steal a Terry Gross or uh, Krista Tippett question to start, and that is, what were the religious or spiritual uh, beliefs that you were brought up with, and how have those shaped your life and who you've become and what you've done? Good question. Uh, so I was raised Roman Catholic, and I went to Catholic grade school, Catholic high school. Uh, but from a very early age, I, I just kind of had a deeper feeling that uh, knowing that I was learning 
Catholicism. And then I've, I, I guess I've always been very curious and uh, I would always ask questions almost to the point where my teachers were just annoyed with how many questions I would ask. Because I would say like, okay, so we study this and we believe that Jesus died on the cross. Well, what about the people that live in Japan or the people that live in India or the people that uh, uh, are study Judaism? You know, who, how can all of these different religions exist and who's right? You know, like, I, it, and, and to me, honestly, it felt like going into my science classes where we learn about physics and the natural laws of the universe. And then you go into religion class and Jesus walks on water and turns uh, water into wine. And <laughs> I just, like I said, from a very early age, early age was very curious. And some teachers would just kind of dismiss it as I was just trying to cause trouble but as I got older, I started to meet some uh, just I literally I honestly was thinking about um, the seminary and kind of even investigating what that would look like, because I, I have been very spiritual growing up. And, uh, and and I just have always felt like I've wanted to be connected to something bigger and grander and just more significant than I knew myself to be, and I wasn't sure what that looked like. So I did investigate the Catholic priest route. And after meeting some priests and talking to them, I really started having some in-depth conversations about what it meant to be a priest and what their true beliefs were about the Bible and about what they did as a profession. And the more priests I talked to, the more I recognized that a lot of People in the clergy recognize that the stories in the Bible are are stories, parables, myths, however you want to call it, uh, mm-hmm. to help us explain things that are unexplainable uh, in the world. And for some people, you know, they they take these stories as literal. Uh, my opinion yeah. is that, uh, like I just said, I believe that these stories were written two thousand years ago by people who. Um, I'm not saying they weren't uh, the the higher thinkers of the day or whatnot, but I, 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 from the research that I've done, most people didn't know how to read or write back, you know, 2,000 years ago. So a lot of stuff was passed on orally um, from you know generation to generation, and we all know the game telephone, where you know you have mm-hmm. six people sitting in a circle and you whisper something into someone's ear, and by the time it comes around to the sixth person it's changed and it's, you know, it's just a different form of what it was. And Mm -hmm. I mean, my personal opinion is that religions, uh, institutional religions are a means for people to connect to something that is bigger, deeper, more spiritual to, uh, than what they know themselves to be, which is, which is great. I think we all have a spiritual need or a desire to be connected to something on the spiritual realm. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I have, I guess, come to the conclusion is that I'm more of a spiritual person in the sense that I recognize that institutionalized religions over, you know, the centuries have gotten entrenched in uh, there's culture involved in there, and there's just a lot of history and tradition, and it's sometimes hard to separate what is what is the 
letter of the law and what's the spirit of the law. And I think the problem mm -hmm. is that people get too attached to the letter of the law when it truly was meant to be the spirit of the law. And I, I, I mean, when you look around the world, ultimately, and I talk about this in Agile Artists, you know, we all are looking to become self-actualized in one form or another. And that generally starts out with, you know, you, you want to have your basic needs met. And then as you have your basic needs met, you then want to feel connected. You uh, want to feel that you're contributing to something bigger than you. And then the final uh, component to the Maslowian um, actualization tier is that transcendent level where you are feeling connected to something on that spiritual realm. And whether you practice Catholicism or Judaism or uh, Hinduism or whatever it is, uh, I, whatever is, whatever religion it is that helps or medium helps you get there, then by all means, that's great. I think the problem is when people identify that their religion is the right and only correct religion. And yeah. that is what has caused more wars, more death, more suffering in this world than I think anything else. And uh, I, I, I think there's a lot of really great um, thought leaders out there who are uh -huh. helping to maybe change that. But uh, unfortunately, there's certain groups around the world that are entrenched in their, their beliefs of what they know. And it really mm -hmm. comes down to, well, that's what I was taught. That's what I, yeah. you know, that's what my mom and dad taught me, or that's what I grew up understanding. And uh, I recently watched a TED Talk about something like this with regards to there was a, uh, the, there was a leader of the Ku Klux Klan in the 80s. Um, I think his name was Roger, uh, gosh, I can't remember his name. And there was an African-American piano player in a bar. And there was a Ku Klux Klan member that came into the bar and uh, really enjoyed this guy's music. And afterwards, he went up to the African-American and said, I really enjoy your music. This is the first time I'm hearing an African-American play uh, honky-tonk uh, uh, music like this. And the African-American... Uh, was interested in you know just sitting down. They shared a drink together, and it turned out that this white guy was in the Ku Klux Klan. And the African American asked if he could get the contact information of the head of the uh, Ku Klux Klan, and because uh, he wanted to interview him, and he didn't tell the head of the Ku Klux Klan that he was African American. So he went and met this guy, and it really was to just understand why people are in the Ku Klux Klan. And mm -hmm. he went and met with them, and uh, the head of the Ku Klux Klan invited him to an actual meeting, which the African-American uh, went to. And he literally was just there uh, answering questions or uh, asking questions and getting to know and trying to understand why people are in the Ku, Ku Klux Klan without judgment, without trying to uh, cause any uh, argument. And after a while, after... I, I want to say it was maybe you know a couple of years or so. The head of the Ku Klux, Ku Klux Klan ended up resigning as the head of the Ku Klux Klan and quit the Ku Klux Klan altogether because he got to know the African American so well and realized that he they weren't any different from each other. And I think that's yeah. a great lesson for us to learn in the sense that even if we disagree with someone's beliefs or what they look like or how they talk, 
I think it's so important to give people the space to just be who they are, because as soon as people feel threatened, they just start to dig in their heels and they will not change their mind. But if you give someone the space to just talk and if you just ask questions and uh, without trying to change them, without trying to like fix it or make it better. Uh, and I talk about this in my book when it came to uh, with my cancer experience and I met with my friend Katrine uh, and I talk about in the book how what I love, really love about her is that when I was going through my cancer experience and talking about how scared I was and, and all the treatment and uh, she wasn't like, oh, you're going to be okay. You're, you'll get through it. Just, you just need to do this. And you, she literally just would sit there and make me feel like I was really hurt. So I would talk to her about being scared. And she's like, wow, that, that does sound scary. She would just validate my feelings to the point and where I started to, the anxiety and, and the fear started to dissolve because I felt like she really was listening to me and giving me the space to just be me in the state that I was in. And then from there, that's when we, inside of ourselves on a deep level, I feel like are then able to uh, tap into who, who we are. Because I think what I talk about in the book as well is that we all have the answers to everything that we're dealing with. It's just a matter of getting, getting connected to who you are on that deeper spiritual level. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's funny because I I think about, you know, sort of the moral compass of every religion and it seems like that is pretty much the same across minus some variation. And it's possible you've seen both of these things. Um, There's a documentary that Bill Maher did called Religious, where he goes around the world asking people, like, can you prove that any of this is true? And nobody, like no religious leader up to the Pope could say, yeah, we don't have any actual evidence that any of this is real. Um, and then the George Carlin bit that he does on organized religion, yeah. you know, you mentioned, you know, how many people have died. And he said, yeah, more people have, you know, died in the name of God than in almost any other situation, which is really tragic when you think about yeah. it. Um, one thing that you mentioned is that, you know, we all have answers uh, within ourselves and yet we look outside of ourselves constantly. Yep for whatever it is that we're seeking. I know this from having read the book. Like I remember uh, there's a section where you mentioned, you know, a conversation with you and the Jonah character from Melrose. And I'm like, Oh, those guys went to the landmark forum. That's it had to have been that or something along those lines. Um, Yeah. And I instantly recognized because I had been myself. So I I wonder, um, you know, why do you think that is? And then where do you draw that line? Because I think that so often this seeking mechanism can become super addictive, which if you've been to Landmark, you know it. Like there are some people who get out of there, they go out and take the information they learn and go out and apply mm-hmm. it to their lives. And there are other people who are just stuck in this sort of vicious personal development mm-hmm. cycle. Uh, I, for me, I, and I talk about this as well. I was never really truly encouraged or nurtured to own my feelings or my thoughts or, uh, or to, to critical think about things. I, growing up, I always kind of felt like it was like, you go to school, you're supposed to obey these rules. You're supposed to just kind of go along with the flow of things. And I remember just kind of questioning, um, certain things. And it was almost as if like, you know, whether it was my parents or my teachers, they would just be like, well, that's, that's just the way it is, or stop asking questions, or, um, 
even when I was applying to colleges, uh, I was like, for me, I wanted to go play football at, you know, a school. And it's kind of crazy because my parents were, uh, they never asked me like, well, what do you truly want to study? Like, what, what are you, what, what are you passionate about? What do you, what lights you up? What do you feel like you want to do? I never really felt like that was nurtured or encouraged in me. So I kind of, I felt like a rudderless ship just kind of floating through life without any real guidance. I felt like I, I, you know, I love my parents because they put a roof over my head. They put food on the table. I, whenever I needed help with my homework, they would help me. And, you know, I'm not complaining because I mean, gosh, that's, I, I mean, a lot of people don't even have that. And so I, I'm not trying to like throw my parents under the bus here, but and I truly believe people are just doing the best they can. So it's, you know, it's hard to blame people uh, for just them doing the best they could. But in my mind, I, I kind of had to figure things out for myself. And it wasn't until mm-hmm. I got to New York City and my, I found myself in an acting class where I truly had to uh, critically think about what is this character thinking? Why is this character in love with this woman? Why is this character wanting to kill this other person? Why? And having these deep discussions, and my acting teacher would have us write out these these uh, biographies where we had to create our own biography for these characters. And I just started reading a lot about why people do the things that they do, and and so I, I started to recognize that the things that I was doing in my life, I was just kind of sort of doing them because that's the way I was raised and that's the way everyone else did them. But it wasn't fulfilling to me. And I started to then recognize that the only way that that I am truly going to find fulfillment in life is if I start making decisions for myself, even if I was going to lose friends over it, or if I was going to uh, uh, piss people off, or uh, um, I don't know, uh, just you know, beat to the uh, walk to the beat of my own drum, so to speak. You, you know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. Yeah. So, um, and, and that's not always easy. Um, but what great yeah. about moving yeah. to New York <laughs> City was that there were so many people, so many individualistic people in New York where I finally felt like I had the freedom to kind of experiment with wearing crazier clothes than I did when I was growing up in Chicago. Cause in Chicago it was all like banana Republic and Ralph Lauren and J crew. And in New York, yeah. it's like people are wearing purple wigs and <laughs> down the sidewalk. And you know, then there'd be the, the gay pride parade. And I mean, people are wearing next to nothing. And, it it provided an environment where I felt like I could, I wasn't judged. Like I felt like growing up in the Midwest, if you wear anything different, you get criticized. Or if you you try a different hairstyle, or if if you you know you, if you look at anything different from anyone else, you get criticized and ridiculed. And in New York, when I was in this new environment, I didn't feel that criticism or that judgment, and so it allowed me to. Uh, to be just a little more creative and exploratory. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I wonder what, uh, you know, it sounds like your parents didn't necessarily push you down any particular career path, you know, with Indian parents, even if they're not doctors, it's always go become a doctor. Like that's what you should do. It's the best thing you Is can that do what with they your really life. Told you? Uh, oh, I, I mean, I had a friend whose mother told him, if you don't become a doctor, I won't go to my grave wow. in peace. And we both kind of laughed and we're just like, okay, I guess our mothers are going to be rolling over in their graves. Uh, you know, it, it's just one of those things that's so deeply embedded mm-hmm. in our culture. Uh, I mean, and I understand my parents' perspective because they're Indian immigrants who came here with nothing and the world was really different for for them, you know, when they came here and they come from an environment in which life is pretty binary. It's not, Hey, you're going to potentially go try this creative thing, fail at it. You can, right. you know, go execute your backup plan. It's, you're going to not be successful and you're going to be in poverty. And those yeah. are realities of yeah. growing up in India. Um, I think that, you know, here we are 25 years later and, you know, for them, it's also been this cultural adaptation of, Oh, wait a minute. Like we've raised these kids in this country. It took a long time for my parents to get on board with what I'm doing now. I think for them, it was, book deal with the publisher was finally the thing that legitimized what I was doing in their eyes. And even then I was like, wow, I'm like, I still want their validation, uh, which took forever to get over. Um, but I, I think that, you know, uh, what, the reason I, I mentioned all of this is, is I wonder, uh, what did your parents say when you said, you know what, I am going to go attempt to be an actor. Like, what did this conversation go like? Because the reason that, you know, I'm wondering about this is, um, Josh Radner actually had an interview with Sam Jones on off camera where he had said he wished somebody had written a book about how to talk to your kids about pursuing wow. a career in the arts. And I actually ended up writing a blog post about it. Uh, and I had, I, it's funny cause I got mixed responses from that blog post. Some people loved it. Some people hated it because I didn't sugarcoat the reality. I said, look, this is hard. This is a situation where nothing is guaranteed. And so I wonder how that conversation went with your parents about, you know, especially being raised by somebody who's a doctor to say, hey, I'm going to go pursue this thing where the outcome isn't guaranteed. I have no idea how it's going to turn out. And I could spend years doing this and it could lead nowhere. Uh, Surprisingly, my parents were supportive. They, what I said, what I recognized was that, uh, more than anything, they just wanted me to be happy. And I think uh, it's funny you say that your parents or in, in your friend's parents encouraged you guys to become doctors because my dad, my dad, my dad's mom actually uh, pretty much was the one that was like, you are going to become a doctor. And, uh, <laughs> and I think he just didn't, knowing what that felt like, I don't think he wanted to put that same pressure on us as kids. And, you know, and that's something that I, I came to appreciate uh, later on. And my mom is an immigrant from Ireland, and she grew up in a um, pretty strict Catholic household. And so, I, again, I think she, having recognized that uh, she didn't like being told what she could and couldn't do like on such a strict level that both my parents kind of gave us the space to figure things out on our own, um, which I think, mm-hmm. you know, is great. Uh, but again, like I feel like I could have used a little more guidance. Um, but then again, you know, uh-huh. my, my sister and my brother uh, seem to figure things out at an earlier age. And so I think, you know, uh, I think a lot of it has to do with personality and, and that sort of thing. But um, I think yeah. the great thing about my parents was that when I did tell them I wanted to become an actor, um, they 
they didn't protest at all. Uh, uh-huh. um, and they never had the conversation like, well, are you sure? You know, are you, how are you going to do this? And how are you going to pay for that? And blah, blah, blah. And uh, so, I, I mean, they would ask me like, how is, how are auditions going and how is it? And, uh, you know, a lot of the time as an actor, it's, it's, it's a struggle because you're constantly auditioning and constantly facing rejection and having to run around and learn these lines and go to acting class. And there's no guarantee that it's going to work out. But for me, what I recognized was that, uh, when I walked into an acting class, when I would read a script, when I would create a character up on stage, there was no other place that I wanted to be. I I just, Mm. I, at 24 years old, when I jumped into an acting class, I finally found what my hell yeah is in, in agile artist. I talk about what that, you know, the concept of what your hell yeah is in the sense that if it's a relationship or a job or a career or a subject you're studying in school, if you do, if someone asks you, do you like what you're doing or do you, you know, love who you're with? If it's not a hell yeah, then it should be a no because in my mind, life is too short to settle. And I think a lot of people settle for things that are comfortable and safe, um, which is fine. But for me, I've always been someone who gets bored with safe and comfortable. And to me, Mm -hmm. I'm someone who likes to be inspired. I like to uh, seek out challenges that are difficult because I, I get a sense of adrenaline and accomplishment when I climb the mountain or I, if I do the triathlon, um, because I feel like I learn a lot about myself and I feel like I grow as a person when I'm, when I set a goal for myself and I have to find a way to overcome the challenges to accomplish that goal. Um, mm-hmm. so I, I feel like, uh, you know, I, I, I've been pursuing this career for 20 years now. And in the last chapter of my book, I talk about how I've come to a point in my life where I am looking for a little more uh, fulfillment in the sense of living life on my own terms. And that's why I recently moved back to Chicago because in Los Angeles, the business has changed quite a bit in the sense of, you know, Netflix and Amazon and, Hulu, they've really changed the, the business model of Hollywood uh, because people have such amazing choices to watch entertainment at home. And because people have incredible home and, uh, entertainment systems like 70 inch TVs, that the idea of going to the movie theater with sticky floors and people yelling and having to get up and popcorn being spilt on you, you know, people just don't necessarily go to the movie theaters as much anymore. And so the amount of money that movies uh-huh. make at the box office has gone down. Um, but there's been a lot more opportunity uh, on these TV platforms. The problem is, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you had four major networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, and then you had Showtime, HBO, and Cinemax. So what was that? Roughly eight main channels. And so when a hit show like Friends mm-hmm. was on or Seinfeld, 
And every Thursday night, like 25 million people would be watching Friends. That's a lot of advertising dollars that advertisers want to spend for those particular TV shows. And, and a hit TV show or even a show that would, uh, was doing well was, you know, making like having like 10 million viewers. And we, when I was on Melrose Place, as, as you mentioned that, um, Melrose Place yeah. was caught in that transition of Netflix becoming more popular. And when we debuted Melrose Place, our viewership was only, I think, 1.8 million the first episode. And wow. the CW right away was like, holy crap, this is not a good sign. And it just kind of started mm-hmm. to tail off from there to the point where we were hovering around like a million viewers per episode. And that kind of show was expensive. And when you're only getting a million viewers per episode, you can't charge the amount of advertising dollars that you would like to. Um, and so unfortunately after one season, that show went off the air. Yeah. I remember, I, I don't remember ever it, it being on CW. I'm pretty sure I watched it, the, binge watched it on Hulu. Like that's how I remember either Hulu or oh, Netflix, yeah. one of the two. And yeah. I, I distinctly remember that. I was like, Oh, a Melrose. Cause funny enough, I had actually never seen the original Melrose place. <laughs> Okay. Uh, I don't know how yeah. that happened, but I was like, oh, you know, I was like, because, you know, I saw the 90210 reboot. It, it's kind of amusing to me. It seems that this is like becoming a trend in pop culture now is to reboot yeah. old shows. Like, uh, I don't know if you see now Karate Kid did a reboot as well. Uh, yeah. Which is actually quite entertaining yeah. if you grew up in the 80s and you remember the whole Karate Kid series. You're like, oh, this is yeah. cool. I just want to watch it for the sake of nostalgia. But yeah, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, you know, it's funny because I I was talking to uh, a media company a few days ago, um, you know, speaking at their digital sales meeting. And I said, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, I encourage you guys to think about is the fact that it's people like me that are the biggest threat to your industry, because what you have happened, you know, you're describing it on the scale of Hollywood. And that seems to be trickling down even into, you know, the type of work that I do, right, where you have this just complete fragmentation of the Mm -hmm. entire media landscape from movies to music to, yeah. you know, podcasts. And, you know, I, I, I think to me, one of the things I said is that if you look at what, in my mind, the future of, of, you know, television is going to be, or future of all media is going to be that whole Kevin Kelly, 1000 true fans idea, because that is the only way a media property will scale in the future, because those are the people that are going to go out and tell other people. Um, but yeah, it's funny because I think yeah. that, you know, for those of us who watch something like Demel Rose, like when you say a million viewers, most of the people listening to this would be like, holy shit, if a million people a day were visiting my blog, that would be a, a lot of people. And yet, you know, for somebody like the CW, it's like, this isn't enough to even continue this. Right. Cause your, your podcast doesn't cost a million dollars an episode. Yeah. Film, so I'd right? imagine that that trickles down probably to how the actors get paid too. Right. Y- you're right. And so what I found over the past few years and what a lot of actors are finding now is that the amount of money that we are able to make per uh, project has gone down significantly. And people all think that actors make a ton of money and it really is only the top like 1%, maybe 3% that are making the obscene gobs amount of money where they're just like private jet to St. Bart's and all this. I mean, for the most part, even when you do good, make good money, on a, a TV show, uh, you may go four or five years before you get your next main job. So you've got to make that amount of money last over you know a few year period. So yeah. it, it it really does average out for the average actor. And um, and just to kind of like piggyback on all this, you know, I was on All My Children, and All My Children was uh, the soap opera was on for forty one years, 
And as soon as the Simple Life with like Paris Hilton and Nicole Richie came out, and then the Kardashians and all this reality television came out, it was so much more compelling than soap opera mm. that the Kardashians literally killed soap opera. I mean, it was like <laughs> reality was so much more exciting than scripted shows about, you know, people backstabbing each other and whatnot. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and now with YouTube, I mean, everyone, you know, anyone can become a star, you yeah. know, which is, which is great in many ways. Um, it just really, truly has changed the landscape of the entertainment industry. And like what I talk about, um, the reason why my book is called Agile Artist is because I've found a lot of my friends in the same situation as me, where I've studied acting for 20 years of my life. And now that the business has changed, it's almost as if like I had, I'd been working in the vinyl record industry and then boom, CDs came out. And all of a sudden I was like, oh crap, all I know how to do is make records. Uh Now what do I do? And so I've, uh, and not that the music, not that music is dead. It's Uh just the way it is delivered has changed. And so what does that mean for someone like me who has only known this one way for the past 20 years? And especially nowadays where everything moves at lightning speed, everyone has having to adapt and do stuff on the side and, and kind of figure stuff out at a much faster pace than they ever have. And what I talk about in Agile Artist is how a lot of the concepts and strategies that we learn as actors in acting classes can be applied to everyone out there in, in, in the sense of uh, learning these strategies to adapt to the ever-changing pace at which things move and how to adapt to this change and how to embrace the unknown instead of fearing the unknown. Because after I would get let go from a job, like my three-year contract ended on all my children, I was let go from Melrose Place after you know, the year. And it, it's like, okay, now I'm out of a job. Now I got to find my next job. And it's very easy for our brains to go to that negative place of you fear what you do not know or what you don't understand. And what I talk about is that in the unknown, our brains are just biologically designed to protect us from all the creatures, you know, thousands of years ago when we were living in the jungle. And nowadays, those fears of life-threatening, you know, uh, life-threatening threats, I guess, for lack of a better description, they're not the same, but our brains still operate the same way. So when we're let go from a job, that can still trigger all that cortisol and the hormones and the, which cause, you know, your uh, blood pressure to rise and, and, and it can cause all these like health ailments. If you focus on that negative part of whatever it is you're dealing with. And as actors, because we literally have to create our own reality every day when we go into these auditions, we have to walk into a crappy little audition room and literally create our own reality and make that little room like the Mojave Desert, or mm. we have to make it Buckingham Palace. And so I started to recognize that, you know what? I've got to create this new character every time I audition, I've got to create this new environment every time. I audition or get a new role. Why can't I do that same thing when I'm dealt with being let go from a job or when I was diagnosed with cancer? It was like, okay, 
I don't know what this means. I don't know if I'm going to die. I don't know if I'm going to, you know, whatever. But what I can control is how I, my perspective on it. How can I create myself to be how I need to be in order to get through this from an empowering perspective? And that's a big reason why I wrote this book because most people don't really recognize that that they can create empowering contacts with whatever they're dealing with. Um, and we as actors do it on a daily basis. And that's, that's what I, I have loved sharing throughout this whole process. Yeah. I think that that was one of the things that struck me most was when I got to the sections where you talked about being out of work and I thought, really? I'm like, these guys, and you mentioned starting to look for other ways to make money. And I thought, wait a minute, it's like, this guy's like famous enough to be on Melrose. Like he's yeah. actually struggling to make money. I'm like, what the hell? Yeah, that was, it was such a, a, you know, shocking thing to me. I mean, granted, you know, as, as an author, I'm, I'm aware of, of a lot of this as well, but at the same time I was like, Oh, I'm like, you know, author, actor, like there's a big difference, but apparently not. Uh, you know, I, I think that maybe in terms of scope, in terms of the number of people you reach, but yeah, that, that really struck me in terms of, of how different it was. Um, yeah. You know, one thing that you you said, one, one other thing, and I, I do want to ask you about this, um, and this is just, you know, out of personal morbid curiosity. So I think, you know, one of the things I was saying to you before we hit record was part of shows like Melrose and 90210 and all the things that followed to that sort of, you know, teeny bopper genre or, you know, what I call pop culture taste of a teenage girl, which happens to be the things that I just absolutely love was every time I saw these shows, I thought to myself, these people are cool. They have the life that I never had um, when I was in high school or when I was in my 20s. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's these two sort of fine lines here in that, okay, this is sort of an aspirational idea. And yet it can also be an idea of, wow, that is never going to be and can be incredibly you know, sort of disheartening to like the kid who's not popular in high school. So I wonder, one, were you, you know, would you consider yourself popular in high school? Oh, God, and how yeah. do you think about something like this, you know, in the context of, hey, wait a minute, I was on a show where technically everybody here is beautiful and good looking. And, uh, you know, I mean, that, that was the one thing that struck me about all the characters. I was like, wow, everybody in this show is really, really attractive. Yeah. It, no, I was, I was a complete dork uh, growing up. I was super skinny. I had braces. I even had headgear for like a year. And my dentist, my orthodontist was like, you have to wear that to, you know, 24 hours a day. It was my freshman year of high school. I was like, <laughs> you, no way am I wearing headgear to freaking high school. Are you nuts? Like, yeah. um, and it, so it, I, I always knew that I, I was self-aware enough to know that I was dorky. Like I, I didn't, there was no, uh, it wasn't like, I didn't know I wasn't dorky. So like when my older sister would invite me to some of these like high school parties, she's two years older than me. I'd be like, Nope, I, I would rather lock myself in my bedroom and build model airplanes than go to a party where if I try to talk to a girl. Hi, I'm Daniel founder of pretty litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, she's going to like kind of laugh at me and then want to go talk to, you know, the jocks who are the juniors and seniors of the football team. Cause I had seen enough movies where, you know, it's like the girls all want the jocks. And I just knew I was like that Anthony Michael Hall character in 16. <laughs> like I just knew it. And so I was like, well, I, and I, I never was really, you know, quick on the draw with my comebacks. And I, I just wasn't, there are some of those like, kids and the smaller kids or whatever in, in school who have, who are the comedians. And at least then they're, they're funny and they know how to make people laugh. So then they're, you know, for me, I was just kind of quiet and uh, shy. And so, uh, you know, where I excelled was um, I was creative. So I'd go to my art classes and I would just create, like I would draw these, like, I, you know, I was a good drawer and I was good at sculpting things and, and people were impressed that way. And so I always kind of felt like, all right, well maybe, I could do something creative. Maybe that's where I belong because it feels like that's where I'm, my strengths are. But yet still, like I would go to the high school football games and everyone would be cheering for all the football players. And I was like, man, like that just seems so cool to be out there 
in the, in the arena. And I, I, my, after my freshman year, I, 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 I played soccer because I was so skinny. There was, I would have gotten murdered if I played football. And so <laughs> I made up. Been there, done that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. In Texas. Oh, there seven oh God. Yeah. Seven. Well, you had it like, yeah, that's, that's big time. Um, and so I told my mom and dad I wanted to try out for the football team my sophomore year. And my mom said, nope, you are not. You are going to get killed. And so I was like, I, I am going to do this. And so I just I started lifting weights and I started drinking protein milkshakes like six times a day. And it was funny because my parents could see how dedicated I was. And for my, uh, my sophomore or my freshman year of high school, for Christmas, they bought me an Arnold Schwarzenegger workout book. And, uh, and it seemed like they you were like, okay, if you're really determined to do this and might as well, you know, learn from the best. And so I got the, the Schwarzenegger book and started, I gained like 15 pounds. And so I weighed all of 130 pounds my sophomore year of high school and went out for this, the football team. And literally the first time I got the ball thrown at me, I got, I did get murdered, but what <laughs> was so good, I mean, and it freaking hurt. But what yeah, I about it was that after I got hit, I, I, I got back up and I was like, ow, that freaking hurt. But you know what? I'm out here doing it. And I'm, I was so proud of myself that I just was like, I don't want to be a watcher. I don't want to be on the sidelines. I want to be mm-hmm. in the game. No matter how good or bad I am, I want to be out there. Because for me, that's, I think, where life life is the most exciting and the most fulfilling. And yeah. I, that's just my, has been my philosophy uh, throughout life. And, and, uh, and, and sometimes I am afraid and sometimes I am scared of going in for that big audition or, uh, you know, whatever it is. But I know that, you know what, I'm not going to die. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not, like, um, I may look stupid, but, at the end of the day, it, life comes down to those moments where you never know until you try. And that's, that's always been my mindset. Um, not always, because sometimes I do chicken out. Sometimes, I, and, then, and then I hate myself because I missed, I, I was like, you know what, damn it, I, I, why was I so chicken? I hate having regret for lost opportunity. And, uh, and one of the things I talk about, like in the beginning of the book, when I was, uh, so for viewers who haven't uh, read Agile Artists yet, I was living across the street from the World Trade Center when all of that happened. And so I went to my windows, uh, you know, when I first heard the first plane hit and saw the flames coming out of the windows. And then I ended up seeing people starting to jump out of the windows. And then I saw the second plane come in. And I mean, it was just a horrendous, horrendously scary day. And what was just even more tragic was looking at those people trapped up in those windows above the flames and it was so frustrating and i felt so angry and so helpless because you just wanted to do something you wanted to help those people and you just couldn't and to see people choose to jump a thousand feet out of a building instead of sitting in the the intense heat of the jet fuel was like as a human being, I, I, gosh, man, that just, that put things into perspective very quickly for me in the sense that I guarantee you, 
if you would ask any one of those people up in those towers, if they had a, a second chance at life, would they let any of the fears or doubts in their mind stop them from doing anything that they wanted to? And I guarantee you they wouldn't. They'd be like, you know what? I've got a second chance at life. And in my mind, I did get a second chance at life because when that first tower fell down, I, you know, I, it almost came down on top of me. I was running down the street when that first tower fell down and that, you know, it was like an earthquake. And, um, you know, it, it just, it living through that kind of an experience, put things, like I said, in perspective, in the sense that up until that point, I'd been studying acting for three years. The idea of going out to Hollywood was exciting, but it was kind of crazy to me in the sense that I, I didn't know anyone out there. I didn't know any professional actors really out there. And I mean, who was I to do that? Like, I, but as soon as those towers fell down, I recognized that, you know what? Acting is what I really want to do. It is my hell yeah. So screw it. Life is short, man. I, I'm going to go out there and do it. I'm going to at least try. I, I don't know if I'm going to succeed, but I'm just I'm at least going to go out there and give it, you know, my best chance possible and see what happens. So I wonder as somebody who has, you know, uh, some degree of fame to the point where, you know, obviously you're recognizable, you know, I mean, I, I looked at your Instagram feed, even though I, I've quit using social media. So this is something I wanted to ask you about actually yeah, is, is you know, one of the things that you had actually said in the book um, was about, you know, <clears throat> let me pull a quote up here for a second. Uh, where is it? Um, an artist can only truly create if he knows his medium well enough to be able to use it without thinking about it, making mistakes, getting feedback and using this feedback to learn from it or something that you can't rush. Mm -hmm. And that struck me in particular because in a lot of ways, I think that that advice also is in conflict with using social media on a regular basis where it's very easy to get attention and confuse it with accomplishment. And so I, I wonder from your perspective as somebody who's had a 20 year career in this industry, when you watched these kids, um, you know, just obsessing over their, their social media following, how do you think about that? And also I think, you know, particularly for girls, uh, young teenage girls, I think this has been incredibly toxic just from, you know, yeah. many of the researchers that I've spoken to. So, cause you have, you know, you have now in addition to, you know, the beautiful people on shows like Melrose place, you suddenly have, wait a minute, these are real people on Instagram and they're all super hot. So mm -hmm. you have all these self images. Yeah. So I wonder how you think about that from a perspective of both craft and in terms of how media um, shapes culture and values. Very good questions. Uh, from a business perspective, I mean, you, you have to respect people who have learned how to monetize social media and how, have learned how to monetize their brand. So you look at the Kardashians, very polarizing because mm -hmm. some people are like, they're famous for what? They're famous for yeah. looking good. Uh, they're famous for like what? Like uh, some people I, just look at them and they're like, but other people, and I, I mean, I respect what they've been able to do in terms of figuring out this whole crazy wild west of social media and it's not easy and uh I, I the entrepreneurial side of me respects people who are able to create the amount of followers that they have on social media and and i think they truly are business people in the sense that they know how to keep engaging their audience 
um, and they know how to monetize it. And so I don't think the people that are truly successful at social media are doing it just for the vanity of it. And I think Mm -hmm. younger kids are doing it more so for the vanity of it, simply for the attention, because obviously it's great to see that you've gotten another like on your Instagram feed. And I mean, I'm (laughs) guilty of it as well. And I'll look at a post, I'll be like, what, only this amount of likes compared? Well, what did that one, you know? And, but for me, honestly, I wouldn't be doing social media if it wasn't, if I wasn't in the entertainment industry, because casting directors, producers, directors, they look at how many followers you have and they look at how you engage with fans. And that means a lot in the entertainment industry. So, you know, I, I started up doing it that way. And now that I've written the book, what I've started to recognize is that I'm able to now connect with people who I feel like I'm really making a positive impact in their lives with regards to people who are also, you know, having gone through cancer or are dealing with certain challenges in their life. Um, but yeah, I think it's very dangerous with social media because, um, it, it is superficial and it's, it's very easy to hide behind social media and make fun of people and bully people. And, and, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I think that's, it's very important that parents are on their kids, social media feeds and looking at what they're doing and posting and, and knowing that, okay, I saw you post that picture of that, you know, whatever it was. And that's, that's not appropriate. Um, unfortunately, yeah it sort of is the wild west and uh, <laughs> right. um, it, it, it has been difficult to figure out. But uh, I think, like I said, what I'm recognizing is that there is a, uh, a, a really nice component about social media where you can genuinely create a community uh, of like-minded uh-huh. people who are trying to accomplish uh, similar things. And not I'm doing this, this, this book tour, people have, been showing up at my my book signings and um just sharing their stories and like i talk about in the book when i was going through my cancer experience it wasn't until i started sharing my true authentic feelings about everything that i was able to uh feel some sense of of strength and security because um i'd always grown up uh since I was so like kind of weak and skinny growing up, I, 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 and I hated that feeling. I, as I got older, I've always tried to hide my fears and my insecurities. And so I'd always put on this persona that I'm, I can do this. I don't need anyone's help. I don't, you know, I can handle it. I'm a man. I don't, you know, you, you don't need to order for me. I, I got it. And once I got, you know, diagnosed with cancer, I, I tried to hide it to the point where, uh, I realized I could not go through this experience on my own. And, and as soon as I shared it with everyone and all my children and, and uh, more of my friends, my community showed up in an, in an amazing way to help support me. Yeah. It's funny because I think about being, you know, super famous or even, you know, as well known as, as you are uh, in an age of social media. And like, I remember this conversation very distinctly with uh, Sam Jones or no, it was Oprah and Julia Roberts, where she had had an Instagram account for a really short amount of time. And it was her just sitting with her niece on the couch and she wasn't all done up like we expect Julia Roberts to look like in Pretty Woman. 
And she said the comments were just vicious. Oh my God. And I thought to myself, <laughs> I God, believe it. Gotta suck yeah. to be this famous when in the age of social media. And I've seen the yeah. mean tweets that people send celebrities and like you've seen Kimmel's uh, mean celebrity tweets. Yeah. Like, you know, authors in their one star book reviews. Like to this day, it's funny. The only review of any of my books that I can remember is from this one woman who wrote me a two star review. Like I can quote that review <laughs> by memory. She said, I hope this guy is a better surfer than he is a writer. And that's the, you know, and one of those books has like 300 five-star reviews. And so, you know, I wonder, uh, you know, one, you know, how do you, how do you deal with that? Like, I mean, how much of it, how much of it do you have to like make a conscious effort to tune out? Because you've got so yeah. many people. Yeah. I mean, I, like I said, I had a brief peek at your Instagram feed shortly after I figured out who you were after getting 160 pages in the book. And I thought, wow, there's like a hundred comments here every day. Like how many of those are, are obnoxious people? Like I just, when I, when I heard the Julia Roberts thing, I see the mean celebrity tweets and I think to myself, wow, okay. You know what? Being famous in an age of social media seems far worse than it ever did before. Oh yeah. Yeah. And one of the great pieces of advice my first acting teacher gave me, and it's one of my sub chapters, it's the 30, 30, 40 rule where she said 30% of the people that you meet or if they see your performance or whatever, you know, they're going to like you. Mm. 30% of the people that watch you or meet you or you come in contact with, they're not going to like you. The other 40% aren't going to care. So you <laughs> might as well just do what you, what fulfills you and not focus so much on what other people think. Because if you're always trying to run around uh, catering your actions to what other people are saying, you are going to drive yourself crazy. I mean, and another thing that really gave me some, some kind of perspective on all this was one of my acting teachers, Susan Batson, she's Nicole Kidman's acting coach. And I talk about this in the book as well. And uh, Susan was telling the story of Nicole on set and it sounded like she was having, you know, just a, just a little bit of, uh, I don't know, str- um, struggle trying to find her character. And she was working with Sean Penn. And, and, and when you're on set and you're trying to uh, just figure out like the, the tone and the right kind of pacing and, and, you know, it can sometimes be, it, it's a work in progress. And so it's not, it's like riding a bike. You get on, you're going to fall off. You have to get back on. And, and the important part is to not judge yourself while you're going through that process. And, and I asked Susan, I said, so like when, when Nicole finally gets to the point where she's like, all right, I'm on the bike and now I'm riding. Is she ever like, wow, that was the best ride ever. And this is great. And, you know, she, it, it, does she get to that place where she's finally like enjoying the bike ride, so to speak. And Susan said, nope. <laughs> she's like, she's the, the one of the most, like, she's just a perfectionist and a true artist in the sense that she, she always feels like it could have been better. And so mm-hmm. she hides her, she holds herself to such a high standard um, that she's always like, well, I'm that, that was horrible. I'm never going to work again. This is the worst <laughs> performance ever. And, and this was like before she was nominated for two Academy Awards. And it, so it just kind of gave me perspective that, you know what? Everyone has fears. Everyone has doubts. Everyone is going to be critical. Yeah. I mean, that's just the way it is. And like I, I talked about earlier, you can either focus on the negative or you can focus on the stuff that inspires you and empowers you. And I guarantee you the woman who wrote that critique on you and your writing, uh, I bet she's a frustrated writer 
who had very little success herself because people who are hurting on the inside that they need to criticize other people in order to make themselves feel better. And so it's important to recognize that criticism is not truth. It's not gospel. It is usually just the spewings of someone who is unhappy and they're trying to they're trying to make themselves feel better. So I usually just I I just kind of say, you know what, God bless them. They're <laughs> in a place that if they are that like they feel the need to comment on an Instagram post that, that like, you know, I don't know, my foot looks ugly or something. <laughs> oh well. Guy yeah. Well, I mean, I, I I got to the point. You know, Seth Godin's best advice I ever heard was that he doesn't read his book reviews. I'm like, okay, this is a guy who's written 19 best selling books. He doesn't read his reviews. So was, he's like, what's the point? He said, I've already written that book. I can't go back and rewrite it. Right, and that's what Paul Newman would say. Yeah. He never would watch his movies after he filmed yeah. them. He just wouldn't watch them anymore, uh, or wow. he just wouldn't watch them because he he enjoyed the experience of filming it and he didn't want to ruin the experience by then watching his performance. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so there are a couple of other things that I wanted to ask you about, you know, so y- you mentioned your siblings earlier. I wonder, you know, one, what kind of work do they do? And like with you being well-known enough to be on TV, do your, does your family consume the content that you create? Like, are they fans of the st- everything that you do? Um, reason being, you know, it's funny. I, my dad hates soap operas with a passion because my mom has watched them for 30 years and it's the thing that he hates the most about what she does. But I think when I, when I went through the book, I had a a much deeper appreciation for what actually goes into creating a soap opera. Like I thought, Oh wow, this is actually hard work. Like I didn't realize that. Um, you know, it's like you said, the plots are kind of all the same, you know, a lot of backstabbing and gossip. And that's why I think my dad hates them. Uh, which means that's why I wanted to ask him like, do your, do you, does your family, you know, watch everything that you're in? Uh, for the most part, yes. Uh, okay. uh, I, I mean, my, my brother, and my sister, they, they have kids. So, uh-huh. uh, usually what they watch is, um, Dora the Explorer. And I mean, by the time they go to bed, they're, it's like 10 o'clock and they can barely keep their eyes open anymore because they've got little uh-huh. ones running around. But, um, yeah, they, they do. And it, it's, uh, it's cool. I, yeah, I mean, I think, they think it's fun. The, the best experience ever was when my family came out to LA for the premiere of Something Borrowed, and uh, we we all got ready at the same hotel, and we had a limousine come and pick us up. And I mean, we, there was probably about fifteen of us. Um, I mean, we had brother, sister, their spouses, my aunt and uncle, mom, dad, uh, my spouse's parents, and we all piled into this limousine and pulled out in front of the Chinese theater and we all got out and got to, you know, take pictures on the red carpet. And, uh, it was actually light blue for something borrowed. Um, and it was just a magical, amazing moment. And that's something that has been really special. And uh, I will always hold you know, special in, in my heart because, uh, you know, it's, it's moments like that, um, where I feel like all the hard work that I put into all of this really paid off. Um, yeah. and that I could share it with my, my family. Cause they, you know, I, I would talk to them on the phone about it, but it's, they don't really truly understand it. And I think sometimes, um, they, I mean, they know the, the, the difficulty it is to, to get an acting job. Um, mm-hmm. but until you're actually there and you're on the carpet, you know, and then it's real for them as well. 
um, I, I think it then just it creates a bond that you know just more of an, another bonding moment that you you know you can have with with your family and um, yeah. and yeah I, I would say like whenever I book a job my the first person I call is my sister she's m- one of my biggest champions and uh, I, I like cool. to text them and, and call them so, oh, yeah, I'm going to the Warner Brothers lot for you know my final sixth audition for this TV show wish me luck and like oh okay you know all right let me know as soon as you get out and then once I hear I didn't get it I. I don't call them back because I'm just so angry. I don't. <laughs> and then they'll text me like, did you get it? I'm like, if, if I got it, you would have known about it. Like, <laughs> uh, well, I have two uh, sort of final questions uh, and then be you know, one question that we always wrap with. Um, I think, you know, you've alluded to it multiple times throughout our conversation. So I didn't want to not, you know, go back to that thread. I mean, you've been confronted with your mortality, what seems like twice in your life, once with nine 11. And then of course a cancer diagnosis yeah. and, you know, reading the book, I gathered you weren't particularly old when you get that cancer diagnosis. So I wonder when you are confronted with something like a cancer diagnosis so early in your life, what decisions did you make about how you would live your life going forward as a result of it? Yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, it was tough, man. Uh, it's similar to nine 11. It was one of those life changing events where, uh, I mean, nine eleven happened so quickly that once I I was away from the towers, the immediate danger was gone. Um, so I knew at least I was I was safe. Um, but when I was diagnosed with cancer, uh, there's just a, the the unknown is longer, um, and going in for you know surgery and then the checkups every three months and then. Going back at the year, my year checkup and being diagnosed again, um, incredibly scary because uh, I literally did not know if I was going to die or not. And uh, I mean, I, it, I really depend. It came down to me having incredible support from my friends and my family. And knowing that I wasn't alone through this whole experience because um, it just can be so disempowering when you don't know what is going to happen. And literally, it's every day waking up and having to kind of create that positive context of, uh, okay, what do I need to do to get through today uh, in a positive perspective? And part of that was like when I would go for my health checkups every month after that second surgery, I had to go in for a chest x-ray and a blood test. And it's scary because you, you, I would sit out in front of the hospital and be like, okay, I'm about to walk in this hospital. Uh, tomorrow they're going to call me with the test results. And is it going to be that the cancer has spread? And so part of me didn't want to go into the hospital, but part of me knew that if I didn't do this, um, that then I, I would be, I would be more afraid of the unknown. And what I tried to focus on was when I was faced with all of this, I looked at it as, as an opportunity, and I said, I "Look at this as an opportunity to sit at home, put the pillow over my head, the covers, and be afraid to walk outside, or 
I can use this as an opportunity to be and act like the, the strong, mature gentleman who was faced with an incredibly scary prognosis, uh, but yet still got up, put his clothes on, um, didn't act like he was a victim, stayed positive, would go to work, focus on the lines that I had to memorize, and uh, focus on positive mindset. And like in my calendar, when I had to go to my uh, checkups, instead of writing a checkup, like doctor's checkup in my calendar, I wrote good health appointment. So I started to just embrace all the the techniques I learned out in Hollywood with regards to creating certainty in my life um, with regards to my health. And I really had to look at it from this opportunity of, of this is an amazing opportunity to, to be able to create myself however I needed to be. And, and through that, I started to develop more self-confidence. And, and as I just one day at a time, slowly got through it, by the time I got through it all, it was almost as if like I was a completely new and different person with regards to how I felt about myself, uh, my confidence level, um, my patience. And so when faced with some of the most you know, difficult situations in life, they really truly are opportunities to become better and more wise and more patient and uh, just a, a more all-around well person. Wow. So there's one uh, final part of the book that I wanted to ask you about. And, you know, we've kind of danced around the edges of this for most of our conversation. Uh, you said that people who have achieved massive success have taught me it's neither money nor the fame nor the private jet that truly makes the difference in life. First and foremost, it's a security in having our basic needs met, followed by the fulfillment that comes with having a purpose in life. It's being able to express who we are as a result of our success that we crave, not the success itself. And, you know, I think that that really stood out to me because uh, you're a person who has, you know, achieved the kind of success I think that any aspiring actor would probably think, okay, that is really where I'm trying to get to. And you've also, you know, like you said, you know, you're not part of that 1% of actors who make so much money that they're jet, you know, jet setting mm-hmm. around, but you've also, you know, stood opposite to people like Kate Hudson, who, you know, we all think of as sort of cultural icons, people that the moment you mention their name, it's like, oh yeah, yeah I know who that person is. What do you think that those of us who have never been up close and personal to somebody like that uh, have as misperceptions about those people in their lives? That they're perfect, that they have no problems, that life, that the red carpet just gets rolled out for them, that they just show up and they get free stuff, that they don't have to deal with the same relationship issues and kids pooping in their diapers and they, you know, people getting sick in their lives and having to deal with death. And I think what's unfair sometimes is that because people are in the entertainment industry, it's almost as if like we are considered uh, fodder for anyone else to comment on or say, or, or like I literally would walk up or show up at some of these soap opera events in 
a woman ripped my shirt open one time and uh, another woman like was, started poking me in the stomach and saying, wow, you're skinny. You're like a lot, almost like I was a zoo animal or something. Um, I think uh, sometimes people can forget that we're just people. Uh, and because we end up playing characters that people look up to and, and can see as folk heroes or, or superheroes like Thor or Superman that, that it's hard for them to separate our character from who we are. And, uh, unfortunately that can sometimes get ugly. (laughs) Um, and so I guess my, my only comment on all that is that, uh, as much as I appreciate and love my job, I think, uh, I, I, I personally would appreciate if people recognize that our job is not easy. Um, we sacrifice a lot, a lot to do what we really truly care about. And, you know, it may look like because we're on the red carpet, we're having a great time, but we have the same insecurities and fears and, and doubts that everyone else has. And, uh, and we're just trying to, to make our way as well and hopefully along the way make a difference in other people's lives because i think most entertainers love to know that they are making a positive difference in, in other people's lives and i think it's a two-way street in the sense that we would love to feel that the people that we are entertaining um would have a make a yeah. m- make the effort to make a positive life in our difference as well uh because I think in, in that sense, it's all cyclical and, and uh, you know, the world would be a much better place if we, if we all just kind of uh, um, looked at life more from uh, how can I, wh- what can I do for you instead of what, what can these people do for me, so to speak. Yeah. Well, th- thank you for that. That was... Um you know, I had another guy here who had had done some documentary filmmaking work with Forrest Whitaker and Eva Longoria. And he mentioned the zoo animal thing. He said, think about what your life would be like if everywhere you went, somebody was trying to take your picture. (laughs) And I'm like, that would be annoying as shit. Yeah. Like, you know, you'd think initially you're like, Oh, that sounds great. And then I thought about it. I was like, yeah, I would want to punch somebody if they kept doing that every time I went somewhere. Um, It just makes me appreciate so much more hearing. Yeah. Fortunately, you know, it's not, to the level of like uh, Chris Hemsworth or Brad Pitt or whatever, but still like when I'm at a a bar at 11 o'clock at night after a couple of drinks and someone comes up and is drunk and starts sticking a camera in my face without asking if they can take my picture. It's like, Hey, look, I'm happy to take a picture with you. Just ask, you know, like, (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I, that whole picture thing to me was one of the things I remember, uh, I, I was on the streets of San Francisco one day and, um, I was walking and this girl ran into Dave Chappelle and I was like, Oh shit, Dave Chappelle. I, I maybe he was in town for something. And she actually asked him and he actually said, no, he said, I don't really like having my picture taken. And I thought, wow, I'm like the character versus the person mm-hmm. such a difference. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think some people, uh, consider that rude if someone doesn't want to take their picture and. I mean, I, I remember I was at uh, the airport uh, waiting for my bag and I'd 
been working on producing this film. And finally, the executive producer of this studio calls me as I'm like getting off the airplane. So I'd been waiting for this guy to call me for like two weeks. And he finally calls me and I'm on the phone and I'm sitting there at baggage claim waiting for my bag. And this woman comes up and taps me on the shoulder. And she's like, hey, hey, weren't you in that movie? And I'm like, oh, hey, uh, sorry. Uh, I was like, uh, um, you know, Roger, do you mind holding on a second? And I, and I turned, I was like, hey, uh, you know what? I'm just on the phone here. Do you mind? I just, uh, I just need to wrap this up. And she's like, oh, what? You're too good for me? And I'm like, no, no, I'm just, I, I'm on the phone. Like, oh, you know what? If it wasn't for people like me, you wouldn't even have a career, asshole. And I was like, <laughs> like I was like, I was like, wow. there's, you can't win, Lita. <laughs> That's amazing. Like you would never right. do that yeah. to any normal person, right? You'd never go up to some stranger and be like, yeah. hey, asshole, get off the phone. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that to me, like I said, this has been super, super eye opening. And uh, it's really interesting to get a view into this world that I think, you know, I've gotten like a, a little bit of a view into it from some of the people who've been guests here on Unmistakable Creative. But I think that you're, Probably as as far as people who are this connected to pop culture, the one that is the closest to a lot of the things that you know we consider mainstream pop culture that I've ever had the opportunity to talk to, and uh, it's just it's been really really eye opening. So I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Their uniqueness, and that they truly embrace who they are and don't try to hide their faults. That they are open and honest about what matters to them and that they share truthfully what they care about. They say that they love someone when they truly do mean it and um, that they just go after what inspires them, recognizing that they're going to fall down, they're going to get kicked when they're down but yet they get back up and just keep moving forward in the direction they want to go. Because in my mind, that inspires me. When I see people going after what they truly care about and what matters to them, it inspires me to keep pursuing what matters to me. So that would be the piece of advice I would, I would say. And, uh, and what I, I truly love about people when I meet them. And I guess my only other um, maybe analogy to this is that when we go to the movies or we're, we're watching TV, wouldn't you say it's the most unique and kooky characters that we love the most? And I feel like so many people try to hide yeah, their no imperfections and uh, their faults. And if you could just keep re reminding yourself that, that we fall in love with people for their uniqueness. I think that is probably some of the best advice I could give. Hmm. Amazing. Where can people find out more about you, your uh, work, the book and everything else that you're up to? So the book is available on amazon.com and at Barnes and Noble. Uh, looks like we're soon going to be in target. And uh, what's really been great is that uh, we've got quite a few reviews on Amazon and they're all five star reviews. And uh, just to hear and read some of the, the, uh, the comments people are saying has just been really um, 
just been flattering and, and also just makes me feel that this book is really resonating with a lot of people on so many different levels. Um, you don't have to be an actor to, to truly appreciate what it means to be an artist. And uh, I feel like um, anyone who is looking to, to find more fulfillment in their life, anyone who is facing change in their life, anyone who is looking to start a new business or learn a new profession or is about to start school, uh, I guarantee you, if you read this book, there's something in there for everyone to help you fulfill on what really matters to you. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? 
We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.